Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you want to get me a question, email it to me there, and I will get it into my queue. This show this week is the one that I was actually going to do last week and uh, catching up on some questions from last week because uh, that had some technical issues and we ended up going live last week. Um, I want to put a plug in for the podcast this week, Sensibly Speaking Podcast. I hope you guys are subscribed to that. It comes out every Saturday, and that podcast this week has to do with Scientology, and uh, specifically about personnel and some of the crazy policies and lectures that Hubbard gave on the topic of administration. And my friend Cyprian Ivanov and I sort of break this down, and he helps bounce uh, some ideas off me and vice versa so that we can have a, a conversation about that. And I actually told some war stories and some some pretty crazy stuff this week. So anyway, if you're interested in that level of the minutia of Scientology and what goes on behind the scenes, like what really goes on, nobody's ever really talked about the stuff that we talk about in the podcast this week. So uh, like I said, I hope you guys will check it out. I also want to continue to plug my uh, Critical Conversation show that we do every Friday night here live. And uh, finally, I want to get on with answering your questions. So no more plugs. Let's get to it. Steve Wood. We all know that Scientology is toxic, and I cannot believe that Scientology staff members are delivering positive news every week. Surely they must get together and discuss the fact that they cannot get new members. Do you think it ever occurs to them now that their ability to attract new public is not going to get better? How do they reconcile their dismal results week after week? All right, Steve, thank you very much for this question, and it is a good one. Um, first, I'd like to say that if you're talking about Scientology staff or Sea Org or people who are dedicated themselves to this cause, if they're still showing up, if they're still reporting for duty and doing the work, then the odds are they're in a headspace where they're convinced that it is going to get better. Um, it does get a bit of a grind, I can tell you, being a staff member, um, you know, week after week after week after week, and after a while, you're wondering, you know, are we doing anything? And that's, in fact, why I joined the Sea Org, is because after eight years of staff in Santa Barbara, I, we, I knew we weren't getting it done. And so I decided I needed to move up. Not everybody does that, of course. A lot of people move right out. They just go, ah, this is for the birds, or I did my time, or I, you know, I signed my contract, I'll fill out the obligation or the responsibility of it. But otherwise, you know, I'm going to continue with Scientology. Everybody, you know, who's in this thing is, is all there for Scientology. But as far as being the dedicated, you know, deliverer of Scientology, the staff or the Sea Org, um, it does get rough, and it does get dejecting, and you do feel like, man, are we ever really going to bust through this? And this is why the yearly, the semi-annual events, the ones that, you know, they have like six or seven of these things every year, are so important because these are the booster shots. These are the... the, the um, the shots of adrenaline that the staff and the Sea Org need in order to keep going. So those events are actually really crucial. And I believe that not having had these events over this last year, year and a half that we've been dealing with COVID, 
Scientology has suffered as a result, and they probably lost staff and probably lost people, public for sure. Um, and of course, the exposure of Scientologists as criminals. I mean, we've got this, you know, the, the chiropractors and and the doctors and the various people who have been indicted and, and uh, convicted of crimes. And we have Danny Masterson, of course, in the news. So Scientologists see that or are aware of some of that, of you know, certainly. But as far as, uh, you know, how they keep going or what is it that, you know, do they ever think that they're, you know, that it's ever, do they, does it occur to them that it's not going to get better? No, that's the part where I would go, mm, hang on, okay, because as dejected and down, as bad as it gets and everything, remember that there's a few little, you know, points of indoctrination. There's a few little points that the staff get to hold on to that keep giving them hope, okay? One, um, not all the staff and not all the Sea Org have been around forever, you know, and so some of them don't know all the stuff we know about the history of Scientology and about its rocky road and its lack of expansion over time. So they don't necessarily think the same way about it that we do, where it's just, you know, how can you just keep on with the grind year after year, right? There is that factor. Another factor is that you have a lot of tools and a lot of policies, a lot of um, pieces of tech that are staff specific, that we that are used to handle, debug, um, resuscitate, revitalize the staff and the Sea Org, of course. By staff, Sea Org, pretty much same thing as far as these tools go. You have audited actions, not just confessionals or sec checks. That's, you know, we talk about that a lot because it's such an abusive practice, but that's not the only tool in the toolkit. There is a division in, in the organizations called the Qualifications Division, and this is supposed to be a self-correcting area where people can go and get corrected and fixed up if they're not doing their job or they don't feel they're doing their job or they're running into issues or problems. And a cramming officer is a staff member who is trained to do this kind of interview and find out where the person's having trouble and narrow it down and get an exact piece of Hubbard advice or Hubbard methodology that will fix or address that situation and help the staff member out. And this gives a staff member the idea that they can keep going because they went, oh, I was doing this wrong. Okay, well, let me go fix that now and apply this policy correctly or do this particular method correctly, and then I'll get better results. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, you know. But because Scientology is very hit and miss, you know, sometimes it seems like it produces a result, and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, and you can, you know, get into that kind of a situation where you're kind of desperate for a result, and you can't seem to get one, and then you go and get corrected, and then, um, you know, and then it looks like everything's fine. Uh, until you run into the next brick wall, right? And uh, and this kind of cycle goes on. You also have the statistics and the condition formulas. And it was interesting because, you know, when I was a young Scientologist, uh, sort of fresh off the boat, really. In fact, before I'd even joined staff, I did a course uh, about the conditions, about all these formulas and statistics and how you figure out which condition to apply? Are you normal this week or are you in danger or is there an emergency? Or, you know, what, what steps are you supposed to take? And Hubbard has these all broken down. 
And I thought, wow, this is genius, man. I mean, if this is all you got to do and it's, you know, and it's guaranteed that your statistics are going to go up or that everything's going to be fine if you just do these steps, what's the big deal? I asked a staff member, I said, hey, Mike, what, you know, his name was Mike. I said, hey, these condition formulas, I mean, these things are great. It seems like if you just do them every week, everything would be great. And he sort of smiled and was like a little, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it would be, it, 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 you, would, you would think it would be that way. But, but sometimes trying to figure out how to apply those condition formulas is not necessarily as obvious as you might think. Or the steps take longer, or you run into various problems, or, 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 right? So while it might seem easy, it's not. And that was my, that was me speaking out of my, you know, naivete, right? Uh, because I then joined staff thinking, oh, look at all these tools, look at all this stuff, we have all this technology, look at all these books, look at all this material, it's going to be great, you know, there's there's so much potential and possibility here for me to realize, and then over time, you start realizing these condition formulas and these debugs and these crammings and all these tools and stuff can fix certain things, but they're not going to fix the fact that, you know, Scientology just doesn't produce results all the time and that there's a whole lot of people out there who just don't want to hear about it and are not interested in buying our books and don't want to, you know, come in and take a personality test. And, and then you're kind of stuck. Then you realize, wow, we are kind of stuck here. And then you kind of accept okay, we're only going to be able to do so much, right? Or we're only going to, I'm going to keep plugging away. I'm going to keep doing this because it's just, and here's Steve, the ultimate final bottom line answer to your question, okay, is that you, as a staff member, as a Sea Org member, you get to a place where you go, well, look, maybe I'm not getting, or maybe we're not getting all the results or all the successes, and maybe it's not taking off the way Hubbard says it's supposed to, but what else am I supposed to do? This stuff, this Scientology stuff works as far as I'm concerned. It's the only thing I see or know that's going to help anybody out of this mess, help people really spiritually in the real long run, you know, beyond the body, beyond this immediate life. This is the only thing that's going to help them. I mean, this is what they really, really believe. And they join staff, they join the Sea Org out of an honest desire to help. I never met a single staff member or a single Sea Org member who didn't join because they wanted to help. So, you know, it, it doesn't help, but that's but that's what they want. And so they settle into the belief that even if it's just one person a week I'm helping, at least I'm doing that much. At least it's something better than nothing. And that that tends to reduce down to an acceptable level for them of at least they're doing something about it, right? And that's what allows them to keep going. And that's far, you know, it is far from only Scientologists who end up in that headspace. So um, some of you watching this might have arrived in that headspace in your job, right? So you can kind of connect with what I'm talking about here is, is, um, is it's just, you know, because they're not going to very... I'm not going to say very, but, but but rarely is 
that the thing that starts sparking, oh, maybe this doesn't work and maybe my life is a lie and maybe this whole thing, you know, that, that you get those times where you get really dejected and you get really down and, and you feel awful about your life. I think we all run into that. And somebody comes along, your significant other, your boss, a coworker, a friend, somebody, your parents, and cheers you up, peps, you know, gives you a pep talk. It gets you going again. And you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and you keep going, right? Because you think what you're doing is basically the right thing to do. And Scientologists think that, you know, all the way to the end. They're thinking this is the right thing to be doing. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, I, I wish it could be better. I wish we could be doing more. Um, but I'm not going to stop. You see what I mean? That's kind of the attitude there. So I hope that maybe casts a little bit more light on um, how and why staff and Sea Org stick with it for as long as they do, because they have all these reasons and hopes to do so. So there you go. Logamug. Why is it that despite their excellent skills slash tools of manipulation and control, why have cults and similar high control groups managed to remain fairly insignificant? It sometimes feels like these groups should have no problem taking over countries, and yet they always seem to cap out early. Thank you very much for this. And I'm really glad you asked this question because it gives me the opportunity to highlight that I think you're looking a little too narrowly at what cults or high-control destructive groups are and what they consist of. For example, let's talk about QAnon. <laughs> now, there is a group that is completely altering the landscape of the United States, and it is a lunatic fringe, tiny little group. Uh, the, co the core of it, okay? Now, there's a lot of Americans who buy into various ideas that fit into the QAnon conspiracy theory, but that doesn't make them followers of Q or QAnons, right? It, it's you, you, just because you believe there's a, there might be pedophiles in Hollywood or in DC or that, you know, some politicians are connected with Jeffrey Epstein and are clearly involved in some, you know, some nasty stuff. That's kind of factual, right? So it's not like just because you have some idea that is vaguely connected to a QAnon conspiracy that you're a Q follower, but the core of that group are hardcore extremists and even radicalized people. And that's a small little group, and they are having a tremendous effect on the United States and on the political landscape of the United States. Um, let's talk about North Korea. That's an entire country that is a destructive cult. It has been three generations of destructive cult ever since the Kim family took over that country. And they are now gods in that country. And, you know, they're not trying to take over the world, but um, uh, who's the guy now? Uh, Kim Sung, whatever. Uh, that guy who's leading the country now he ain't going anywhere, and he's got no uh, idea that he's, you know, not. he's going to live a nice long life as a God figure running this country. You know, that's his goal. That's his ambition. And uh, and that's all he needs. That's all he wants. And uh, and that's that's kind of big. The To get more specific to answering your question, most cult leaders aren't trying to take over the world. They're not supervillains in the Marvel Universe, right? They are just trying to, they've, in fact, a lot of them just kind of fell into what they're doing. 
it wasn't uh you know a, a plotted premeditated sort of thing they they realize through their the course of their life and through the opportunities that present themselves that they have the ability to manipulate other people and that they have the, they have the ability to control or dominate other people and using that and having a you know moral compass that swings kind of south you know, kind of evil these kinds of people use those skills that they develop or go learn more about how to develop and use those skills in order to satisfy whatever needs they have. And those needs could be more sex, money, you know, right, finances, domination just to just for the sake of dominating people or controlling people, just to get off on on watching their antics and and pulling their strings and sort of being a puppet master. That's kind of a power kick for a lot of people who get into this. But they don't want to do it to the entire world. <laughs> That's too much like work. <laughs> You know, these guys are an awful lot like your standard issue criminal. Pretty lazy. You know, criminals like the mafia, for example, are doing what they're doing because they don't want to go have a nine to five job. Now, I'm not I'm not making blanket statements about every single criminal. So don't get me wrong here. I'm talking about like organized crime. I'm talking about cult activity. These kinds of people who do this kind of thing generally are not. Um, and this is kind of interesting, but generally they are not really hard workers. They get other people to become hard workers for them, you see, and they are manipulating and controlling these people. So they do their laundry, file their taxes, you know, do all the work that they don't want to do. And this, and you see this in organized crime as well. There, some of these people are actually incapable of holding down a regular job like you and I have done. They actually can't do it. And so they, you know, so the criminality becomes their path of least resistance and or a cult leader becomes the path of least resistance for the person. And it, it just happens to match up with their skill set and the opportunities in the context of their of their existence, of their life. So so that's how it tends to actually start. Um, you know, there, there's also situations where like, let's talk about a, a martial arts dojo and you have a sensei who starts a school. Well, he didn't necessarily start it with the intention of making it into a cult, but he finds that, you know, being in a position of power over people, hmm, this feels kind of good, you know, and then it gets, you know, master slave, this kind of thing. I mean, you know, things things get out of hand kind of quickly, and before you know it, you got you know you got yourself a cult. So, um, so it can be premeditated, of course. I'm not trying to suggest it never happens through planning. Of course, it does. But I'm also pointing out that it also happens through no planning, and that the people who get into this kind of thing are not necessarily trying to grow their group beyond you know, 10, 20, 30 people. That's that's all they can handle and they're happy dealing with that. And that gives them all the money, all the sex, all the power, all the control that they want. And they're satisfied. That's it. That's as far as they're going. Now you get somebody like an L. Ron Hubbard. He wants to take over the world. He wants to slam his name into history. He wants to never, ever be forgotten. That was Hubbard's thing. That was the that was the 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 two things he seems to have been really trying to do with Scientology is fix his own nonsense, fix his own craziness that he knew he had, 
according to his own writings, and get his name uh, as he wrote to his his first wife and said in a few places, you know, slam his name into history, gain immortality. And he uh, believed that uh, occult methods and and cult methods would be the way to make that happen. And he's been dead since 1986, and we're still talking about him. So, uh, and he is one of the most, I think he's got the Guinness record for most translated author in the world. I mean, Hubbard's goals kind of were accomplished so far. And, uh, you know, and Scientology continues to exist. However, it is a shrinking thing because David Miscavige has different ideas. Miscavige isn't trying to really take over the world. Whatever Miscavige is trying to do, that's not what he's trying to do. He's using Scientology more to, you know, satisfy his cravings, his whims. And I think he's more on the power trip. Hubbard was all about money, too. He was big on getting money. Um, Miscavige is big on money. Actually, I think Miscavige is even bigger on money in some ways, um, mostly for that safety and security. And, and of course, underlying all of this, all of this, for every one of these people, cult leaders, criminals, all of it, but especially the cult leaders, fear. Fear is what drives almost all of this. Fear of other people, fear of being dominated, fear of being controlled, fear of, of being hurt or abused or even killed, right? These cult leaders are living in constant fear of that. Um, and so they do what they do, you know, for the most part, because it's kill or be killed, dominate or be dominated. I mean, they have, they don't have real complicated nuanced thinking going on when it comes to why they are doing what they're doing to people. And it's mostly comes out of a um, effort of self-protection. And this is, this is at least theorized as, um, you know, why narcissists are the way they are, why um, abusive tyrant type people are the way they are, is it's fear-based, right? So I wanted to comment on that too. You'll always find for almost every, uh, you know, I said all these guys, <laughs> I always have to kind of go, okay, now I say stuff like that, but I got to pull it back because you'll always find exceptions to what I'm saying here. But I'm trying to give the bigger, broader, more general picture of what, um, what you would expect to find in the majority of cases. However, you will find exceptions to everything I've said. And that doesn't, you know, invalidate what I'm saying. It's just kind of shows that the world's a complicated place and so are people and their motivations and reasons for doing things are multi-layered and complicated. Uh, but, you know, in the big picture, I think most of what I've said here is, uh, is a correct answer to your question. So I hope that helps. Jonathan Perry. John Atak said on his podcast that Tony Ortega reported that two private investigators were arrested for a rape, but their primary mission was to assassinate Leah Remini. He really didn't elaborate on it other than what I just told you. I'd really like to hear your take on this one. I don't know how Miscavige could be that stupid. If anything happened to her, he would be the first person they would look at. I don't really know the details, but I'd like to hear them from you. All right, Jonathan, thank you for this. This was actually fully reported on on Tony Ortega's blog. So really all I'm doing is repeating Tony's reporting here, and I'll put a link to that story 
in the description here because he gives all the data on this, including showing the text messages and information from the private investigators behind this whole story. And it's not the case that these private investigators were sent out to assassinate Leah Remini or anything like that. Um, and the rape charge is is a is a separate thing. So basically, what happened is two private is a private investigator who was tasked with following Leah Remini around in New York with a team of other private investigators. I think these guys were ex cops. Were texting with one another, coordinating the logistics and the, and communicating on what they were doing while they were following her around. And those text messages came out in court records on a different case. The case had to do with these PIs following a woman who was the wife of a millionaire um, who I think was a candy maker or something. He was some guy who had a lot of money, was having his wife followed around because he suspected her of infidelity or, or marital problems. And... Um, apparently, the wife, during the course of being followed around, these private investigators were charging the rich guy so much money, they were kind of taking advantage of his money, they ended up charging him like $8 million or some ridiculous amount of money for following his wife around for all this time. He re He didn't like that. But also, during the course of this, the wife reported that... These guys had contacted her, these private investigators, one of these, one or two of these private investigators had contacted her and had sexually assaulted her and had blackmailed her into that. And they said that didn't happen. That's not what's going on. But that's what she said. And so there's, there's you know, filings and counter filings going on with that. And in the course of processing and dealing with that case and those sexual assault allegations, these text messages came to light. Of, from this other case these guys were working on. So these were two different matters. And um, you can see all the text messages and see all of this broken down by Tony in, uh, on his blog and in a report he did for the Daily Beast. So um, they said in one of the text messages something about, oh, isn't this Leah, why are we following her? And it was like, oh, Scientology. And it was like, oh, don't they want her dead? And it was just a random sort of comment made in a text. It wasn't, we're killing her, we're going to kill her, we're, we're tasked with killing her. It, nothing like that, okay? It would be, um, well, let's just say if Scientology were to task somebody with killing someone, and I, and I don't think that they have any intention of doing that right now, but if they did... They would not hire these guys and and have them texting about it with one another. It would not be they wouldn't be that sloppy about it. I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, but even if they were, you know, that's not that that's not the case here. Okay, so that's what I can do to clarify that for you and sort of explain the the context of the situation. It was a little complicated, and unless you really dug in and read through all the details. It, it, there were a lot of moving parts, and it seems a little weird, and so I understand why John or anybody could have misconstrued what the reporting said or what was going on. It's not, it's not a big deal. It's just um, that's it, it's not quite how it was presented there. Matt, suppose somebody were to take their first steps into Scientology today. At what point would they be introduced to the concept of implants? 
This seems to crop up all over the place without ever being treated as a discrete subject in itself. Even when all the engrams have been cleared away and all the body thetans exercised away, they are somehow still there, lurking in the background. They seem to fall into three categories. One, current, this world, abuses of power, psych, ops, and so forth. Two, false ideas installed in us by the various extraterrestrial forces of old. Three, it's further implied that there will be a re-implanting of such ideas in the period after we die. Is there any explanation offered for how this is done? Who or what does the implanting? Where is it done? How is the Thetan taken there? And what is the purpose of it? All right, Matt, thank you very much for asking me about this. Now, the fact of the matter is, I actually did write extensively about implants as a subject in my book, Scientology A to Xenu. Uh, so that is linked in the description to this and every single video I've ever produced. And I would really recommend that you take a look at it because there's an entire chapter in there about all of this, okay? And I am not going to repeat that entire chapter in answering this question, but I will address your points. Implants are basically kinds of engrams, okay? That, and an engram in Dianetics and Scientology is a moment or incident containing pain and unconsciousness. It has to have those two elements. There has to be pain, and, it is, and even if for a microsecond, there has to be a moment or longer, could be hours, could be days, of unconsciousness. And that's what makes an engram an engram. And engrams are addressed with Dianetics. When you get Dianetic auditing, you go back and remember these times, blah, blah, blah. Well, implants are just sort of purposeful, concentrated pain and commands purposefully installed in a person in order to get them to act a certain way or get them to not act in a certain way, to refrain or, or restrain their behavior. So um, it's one of those two things. That's what implants are all about. And behavior is modified by belief, by what a person thinks. So the implants are to get a person thinking a certain way and thereby acting a certain way. Uh, for example, not leaving Earth. Not taking off, not going off and creating your own universe or making your own place or remembering your last lives or feeling a compulsion to have sex or to eat or to sleep or to worship Christ or to, you know, have a religion. All of these things, according to L. Ron Hubbard, come from implants. And there have been millions and millions of implants that you have received and, by the way, given to other people too. All of us, through all of the various incarnations, through space and time, have been victims and victimizers. And both flows of that, doing both receiving and giving, mess you up. Hubbard says it's not just receiving an engram that will mess you up, but giving somebody else an engram is also going to mess you up because it's going to remind you of all the times you had received the engram. So it's, a, it's this sort of vicious cycle that sort of feeds itself and, and keeps itself going, it, no matter which end you're on. And, um, and so this is kind of the, the basic idea of it. And so because they're engrams, once you go clear— 
you're not going to be accumulating those engrams anymore, at least on the first dynamic toward yourself. You still have all these body thetans to deal with, though. And every one of those body thetans that's attached to you has their own implants. Millions of them, just like you do. So the implant phenomena or the implant effect is compounded on you by all these body thetans that you're carrying around with you that you have to exorcise, right, that you have to get rid of. And, um, and of course, that's what the OT levels are all about. So you're not done with implants even after you're clear because you got to deal with all these body thetans. And the body thetans are, are kind of crazy. And their thoughts and your thoughts gel. They go together. You can't, you can't really easily tell the difference until you've gone through all of these OT levels, okay? This is the, this is the theory of up behind all of this. So when you get up through OT level 7 and you've completed OT7, all the body thetans are supposed to be gone. No more. It's just back down to you. Just you, the little, the little snowflake, right? The little snowflake thetan. And you're clear now. And you don't have all these body thetans now, so implants will no longer actually have an effect on you the same way they used to. Because the only reason implants or engrams matter and are important, according to Hubbard, is because they accumulate. The, the later one relies on the earlier ones for its effectiveness. The earlier ones are the strong, heavy-duty ones, and the later ones are kind of you know, they could be strong, they could be heavy, but they don't have to be because they're what because they're re-stimulating or they're pulling up the charge, the mass, the problems, the stress from the earlier incidents. Okay. But if you've gone through and erased all those and don't have that charge anymore and you haven't accumulated all that, you're not carrying that around with you anymore. You know, Jacob Marley let go of his chains. Like, you know, they're gone, right, from the Christmas Carol story, right? Like, if he wasn't any longer carrying around the sins of his past, then he'd be free. He'd be, he'd be, woohoo, he could go do whatever he wanted to do. And if you came and tried to lock him down and implant him again, you'd have a much harder time because you're dealing with a much more powerful spiritual entity. Okay, so that's the idea, and that's how it is that Scientologists think that by going up the bridge, they're proofing themselves up against all these traps and all these, these you know, problems that they've been dealing with all this time. This is why Hubbard says that Scientology is the thing that's going to free you from all of these traps, is it's going to empower you with knowledge and with auditing to get rid of the charge so you no longer are compelled to repeat the commands of the implants that you've been given. And I hope all that makes sense. <laughs> um, but that's kind of how Scientologists believe that they are becoming free of these implants. So I, I hope I'm clarifying here that implants are not different from the other kinds of things that people get audited on. And eventually, when you get up through OT level 7, you won't have any more of that, and the ability of the implanters to affect you will have been basically nullified. 
unless, of course, you're a damn idiot and you forget it all again, or you just dive right in and try to get implanted again or something. I mean, you could do stupid stuff, but that's basically the idea. Um, as far as who does it, where it's done, it, anywhere and everywhere. I mean, Hubbard talked about implant stations that existed in the Appalachian Mountains or in the Urals or the Caucasus Mountains. Um, he talked about implant stations behind uh, screens on Mars that make them, you know, render them invisible. We can't see them or, or detect them. Uh, same thing with Venus. I think he said there's some stuff on Venus. Um, I think he talked about trains on Venus, too, and whole, whole societies on Venus. Uh, but Hubbard could always write this stuff off with, you know, they have high-level technology that we don't have yet, so they're able to hide themselves or camouflage themselves so we can't detect or see them, you know, and that's uh, that's why we haven't run into anything on Mars, even though we've sent, you know, explorers there and, and have mapped this, the entire surface of the planet and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the deal with that. And I go into a more detail about implants and about specific kinds of implants because um, Hubbard has documented a lot of different kinds of implants. He talked about gorilla goals and and uh, airplane hanger goals, like, you know, that you could get implants with goals implanted, you know. Um, he talked about helotropus implants, and he talked about all these other things. I actually detail some of that in my book, but I'm not going to get into it here because I've, I've already given basically the answer to the question. So anyway, there you go. Hope that helped. Maria. Hello, I vaguely remember you saying in one of your podcasts that if any Scientologist is convicted of a felony or misdemeanor that hurts their PR, in a real court of law that is, then they're kicked out slash declared. I was actually surprised to hear this because I know of a few who have been convicted of crimes, not going to name any names, and sentenced to prison time, some who were somewhat prominent people and or had celebrity status, and they are still widely accepted in the church. Which brings me to my question, how does Scientology deal with people, and in particular public figures, slash those of celebrity status within the church who are accused and convicted of crimes that substantially tarnish their image, and as a result could make bad PR for the church? All right. Thank you, Maria. Now, the first thing I want to say on this, and this, is, um, this comes up from time to time, but I've never really talked about it here. Um, it, there is no reason for you to ask me a question like this and not name the names. I have no idea who you're talking about. And I'm not aware of any Scientologists, prominent Scientologists, much less celebrities, who have gone to jail and are still Scientologists in good standing. So you're going to have to clarify what you're talking about when you ask me a question like that. And you are going to have to name the names because I need the context. Otherwise, I'm sitting here going, who are you talking about? And, and, and I feel a little out of the loop and like, wow, I don't know if I can answer your question fully if I don't have all that data. So let me say that first off. Now, having said that, um, there is only one person I have ever seen in all of history of my connection with Scientology where a Scientologist, a former Sea Org member, but not a celebrity, nobody of any real status, no financial status of any kind, so he was really just a regular Joe Scientologist, ex-Sea Org member, who is in jail right now, 
because he got caught in a child pedophilia ring and he was, uh, you know, soliciting a minor for sex and he ended up in jail. And this was somebody I knew. His name was Yasha. And um, Mike Rinder reported on this years ago on his blog because we found out, oh, my God, this guy's in jail. But his Facebook page was being kept up by his wife as though he wasn't. She, of course, was an ex-Sea Org Scientologist as well. So the church was trying to cover over this situation by not letting anybody know that Yasha was in jail, much less for what he was in jail for. Blew me away. I had no idea that he had any kind of such proclivities. And, um, and, and there you go. So that was an active cover-up where the church pretended, or the, the Scientologists here pretended, that it didn't happen. And that there hadn't been anything like that. Now, I bring the church's name into it, even though I actually can't provide you any evidence that the church was actually behind the cover-up or connected with it in any way, to be honest. It could well be that his wife just kept up his Facebook page, for all I know, unless there are details I'm missing. But you can look that up and check it out. But um, even with that... I am absolutely positive because the church's policies are crystal clear on this matter that Yasha is never going to be doing Scientology again. Um, he, one, he's, just, he's, he's not a whale. He's nobody of any financial resource. So there's no reason to give him a break or cut him some slack and, or give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, they might, but I, I can't think of any reason to. So the church's official position on him should be you're out of here, buddy, and uh, and that's all there is to it, especially with those kind of charges. I mean, he was caught in a federal ring, uh, you know, of, of trapping people who are soliciting sex from minors. So it wasn't like there was some question about what he did, you know. It was one of those kind of cases. But when you look at, you know, Jay Spinoza or Reed Slatkin or some of these other guys, these guys go to jail and they're that, that's it. They're not connected with the church anymore because they're criminals and the church doesn't want to associate or be associated with criminals. Now, Danny Masterson, they're on a big roll right now about how it's all a fake. It's all set up. He didn't do any of this. All these women are lying. Leah put them up to it. They're just trying to get money. So in that case, Scientology's official position is that Danny Masterson's innocent. And if he's convicted... We'll see what they, if they change their tune or not. I'm pretty sure the church's name is going to get dragged hard on Danny Masterson during his trial. So I don't think they're going to be, if he gets convicted, I don't think they're going to be in a very forgiving mood about him either. But um, if you know of, of instances or cases where I'm wrong about this, please do let me know because I want to just, you know, I want to know more and I want to believe true things. And, um, and this is what I say about this is simply speaking from my experience when, you know, when criminals came along we showed them the door, and if somebody was in Scientology and committing criminal acts and getting caught by the law, we showed them the door. You know, we didn't keep them around. So, again, um, you know, just let me know. All right, thanks. All right, let's do some flash answers. Kevin Brockman. I know in that court case with Danny Masterson, there's a religious arbitration excuse Scientology is using because of something the alleged victims signed. 
Do I need to call Scientology and cancel some kind of contract to make sure that excuse doesn't get used on me ever? Well, Kevin, if you're planning on suing Scientology or going after them legally, then yeah, you probably should check that out. And you're going to have to get legal advice on that because I am not a lawyer and I don't really know. However, what I do know and what I will recommend is that you actually write a letter of resignation to the Church of Scientology and you make sure that they receive it. And and that gets you legally off the hook for having to comply with or be considered a member of Scientology any longer. It actually does matter, and that um, that apparently has some kind of uh, legal, you know, uh, influence or effect. It's not going to get you out of what the women who are suing Danny Masterson in a civil case, which is the case you're referring to. It's not the criminal case. It's a it's a civil lawsuit. That case is held up on this religious arbitration thing right now, not because of anything they could have done or that they didn't send in their resignation letters. It's because of contract law. And so that's why I say you'd have to consult an attorney on that because I really don't know. Kim McF. Every year I go to Dragon Con, a multi-fandom convention in Atlanta, Georgia. Every year I see a booth dealing exclusively in Hubbard's science fiction publications in the dealer's hall. It's pretty obvious that this is a Scientology outreach effort, and in your most recent Q&A, you mentioned that Scientology did, in fact, use sci-fi as a gateway to credulous people. So my question is this. What kinds of people do they have staffing these booths? Are they hardcore Scientologists who may be looking for possible recruits, or public Scientologists who are more plugged into the con scene or something else? I recognize that you left Scientology some years back and are not likely to have the most current info on minutia like this, but I'd be interested in what you think is likely. Hey, Kim, thank you. And actually, I do happen to know specifically on this one um, because Bruce Goodman and the other staff who man these booths at these at Dragon Con or at the other sci-fi conventions are all staff. They are all Sea Org, I should say. They are all Sea Org members. And they are all working for Author Services, Inc., ASI. And that is the organization that is L. Ron Hubbard's literary agent. All of Hubbard's fiction works fall under ASI. They hold all the properties, all the copyrights, et cetera, for those works. And they are at the cons to publicize and, and promote those works. The purpose of that is to create safe ground or make L. Ron Hubbard more acceptable to more people in a non-Scientology context so that they are creating fertile ground for Scientology to then come and convert them into Scientology. So it's a one-two punch. They're not looking for direct converts at the conventions, at the sci-fi booths. They're, of course, they would take one. If somebody started asking questions, they would probably answer. But their purpose is not to make Scientologists. Their purpose is to safe point L. Ron Hubbard, is how they put it, right? Create good PR for L. Ron Hubbard and his name so that people will be more accepting of him. And they spend a lot of money. And the people who work at those booths, by the way, are some of the highest level Sea Org members you will ever encounter. Uh, not just anybody works at ASI. You have to go through a tremendous number of hoops. 
and uh, loyalty tests before they're going to trust you with L. Ron Hubbard's fiction works. ASI is a very small organization. There's a handful of people who work there, and they are Sea Org members, but they sort of put the Sea Org member thing aside for a bit while they're working there. I think they get salary and stuff like that, but nobody's getting rich working at ASI, trust me. But they get to dress up better, and they get better food, and they get better you know, accommodations and stuff like that because they're high-level Sea Org Scientologists. Um, that's the people who work on those booths. So there you go. Travis, do you think it's appropriate to have a functioning disco ball installed in a daycare? Travis, I don't know how you really have a daycare without a functioning disco ball. I mean, come on. All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me gab on here. I hope that you enjoyed my answers. I hope they were useful and that they uh, did the trick for you. And of course, you know, if they don't, if I, you know, I've never really asked this before, but, you know, if I throw answers out and you guys don't like what I'm saying <laughs> or, or it doesn't quite do it for you, please feel free to write me and let me know that and let me know what it is about my question or the question or my answer that didn't quite do it for you. And I'll, I'll, I'll tackle it again or I'll, I'll address that. Okay. So that all being said, um, thank you very much for coming around and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.